following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, may grace and peace be multiplied to each and every one of you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah and chapter 52. The prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 52. The title of my message this morning is The Resurrection According to Isaiah. The Resurrection According to Isaiah. We read read earlier about the resurrection as John saw it and encountered it and experienced it. We read about the resurrection in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. We read about the resurrection from a theological perspective as we read 1 Corinthians 15, 58 verses on the glory of Christ's resurrection and the hope of our future resurrection. But as we turn to Isaiah, we go back 700 years, and yes, even here, we read about the glorious, triumphant resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to begin by reading from Isaiah 52 and verse 13 through the end of chapter 53. But our primary focus this morning will be on verses 10 through 12 of chapter 53. So as always, it's with a great sense of privilege and unworthiness and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the life-imparting, faith-arousing, soul-purifying words of the true and living God. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard, they understand Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make the many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Grace Community Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The prophetic ministry of Isaiah began 740 years before Christ, in the year that King Uzziah died. And this man prophesied for approximately 40 years in Israel. Isaiah warned the people that if they were not willing to repent and reason with the Lord, to walk in obedience to him, they would be devoured by the sword of Assyria. Chapters 1 through 39 address the nation of Israel in its idolatry and in its iniquity before they are taken into exile. Chapters 40 through 55 address the nation as if they're already in Assyria and overwhelmed with a sense of hopelessness and despair. And verses 56 through 66 address the nation as if they've already returned from exile. And so the backdrop to all of Isaiah is that is that of sin and what it results in exile from God's presence. But dispersed throughout the book of Isaiah is the promise of salvation and deliverance, not only from the Assyrians, that was the least of their worries, salvation and deliverance from the very thing that led them into Assyrian captivity, sin and iniquity. In continuation of God's promise to Abraham that his offspring would bring God's blessing to all the families of the earth. And in continuation of God's promise to Judah that the scepter would not depart from his family line. That one of his descendants would have dominion over the peoples. And in continuation of God's promise to David that one of his descendants would have a kingdom and a throne that would last forever and ever, God, through Isaiah, narrows down the expectation and the longing. Isaiah 7.14, for example, this coming one would be born of a virgin and his title would be Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 he will be both human and divine. Isaiah narrows down this prophetic longing and tells us in chapter 11, verse 1, that this Messiah will be from the line of Jesse, David's father, and he will be filled with the Spirit of God, filled with wisdom, filled with justice. Isaiah 11, verse 10, this same coming rescuer, he will draw not just Israel, but he will draw the nations to himself. Isaiah 40 and verse 3, he will have a forerunner to announce his arrival and prepare the way for him. Isaiah 40 and verse 5, this Messiah will reveal the glory of God to all peoples of the earth and not just Israel. Isaiah 40 verse 11, he will come as a shepherd to tend his flock. Isaiah 42 and verse 1, this one will rule the nations with justice. Isaiah 42 and verse 6, Isaiah narrows it down even more. He will be given by God to be a covenant to the peoples, to be a light to the peoples, to shine upon them in their darkness and to bring them salvation. And of all these clues 
that are given and laid down in the prophecy of Isaiah approximately 700 years before the birth of Christ, who is the fulfillment of all these, all these expectations and longings. Out of all these clues, we come to now consider chapters 52 and 53. We come to chapters 52 and 53, where we are given what is perhaps the single greatest portrayal in the entire Bible, New Testament included, of the life and work of this virgin-born, spirit-filled, shepherd king, and how God, through him, will redeem his people from their sins. And as we come to Isaiah 53 this morning, this is arguably one of the greatest, most remarkable chapters in all of Holy Scripture. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, stated that this is one of the chapters that lie at the very heart of the Scriptures. It is the very holy of holies of divine writ. Let us therefore put off our shoes from our feet, for the place whereon we stand is specially holy ground. This 53rd of Isaiah is a Bible in miniature. It is the condensed essence of the gospel. The chapter is divided into five stanzas. And each stanza represents or presents a different aspect of the Messiah's ministry and work. The one referred to Isaiah in his prophecy as the servant of the Lord. This is called one of the servant songs. It highlights the fact that when our Lord came, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he is called the servant again and again and again in Isaiah, because he came not to be served, but to serve God, to serve his people in the giving of his life as a ransom for their sins, to release them from the captivity of sin. In the first stanza, which begins in chapter 52, verses 13, 14, and 15, God opens, God begins to speak. God breaks the silence and he states that the overall outcome of the servant's work is victorious. Even before it happens, he states the outcome. He states who wins. He states the conquest even before the battle. Notice verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Remarkably, these ascending degrees reflect our Savior's resurrection. He shall be high. His ascension, he shall be lifted up. And his exaltation, his coronation at the right hand of God, he shall be exalted. This is the reward for his obedience unto death, as Philippians chapter 2 tells us. Regarding our Savior, Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, a servant, just like Isaiah tells us. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of God the Father. And that's what Isaiah tells us. He shall be high, resurrected. He shall be lifted up, ascended. And he shall be exalted, where? To the right hand of God, until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And so even before the descent into his humiliation, down, down, down into the valley of suffering and death, God, through the prophet Isaiah, tells us of the outcome. He will be high, he will be lifted up, and he will be exalted. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, as the writer to the Hebrews teaches us. This exaltation parallels that of the famous chapter, Isaiah 6. Where Isaiah, according to the Apostle John, 
sees the pre-incarnate Son of God sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filling the temple. Same exact language. He shall be high and lifted up. So Isaiah sees this same Christ high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the entire heavenly temple and then now coming to earth and receiving that same exaltation as the God-man now. The God-man. Well, no sooner than God declares the Savior's astonishing exaltation he declares his astonishing humiliation. Verse verse 14. As many were astonished at you, speaking of his people, devastated, leveled, exiled, his appearance, speaking of the Messiah, his face in the Hebrew, his presence was so marred, so marred, mishat in the Hebrew, it means disfigured, deformed he was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind night and day difference isn't it from verse 13 high lifted up exalted and now we see his face so deformed so disfigured so marred beyond that of the children of mankind We know from the accounts of the gospel writers that Jesus was struck in the head while he was blindfolded. He was spat upon. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was abused. He was crowned with thorns. And it wasn't a a gentle crowning. They beat it upon his head. He was scourged by Roman soldiers. One writer says regarding Roman scourging, quote, To be flogged with a Roman scourge was a severe, even life-threatening punishment. The victim was lashed mercilessly with a flagellum, a short whip consisting of a wooden handle to which long leather thongs were attached. Each strip of leather had sharp pieces of bone, iron, and zinc held in place by knots spaced an inch or two apart for a foot or more along the business end of each thong. The victim would be tied to a post with his hands above his head and his feet suspended off the ground, stretching his body. As the biting strands of the flagellum tore into his back, muscles would be lacerated, veins cut, and integral organs exposed, internal organs exposed. So massive was the trauma inflicted that the scourging itself did sometimes prove fatal. Isaiah tells us that many would be astonished at the extreme disfigurement of his face, as you can hardly imagine. His face covered in blood, both fresh and dry, from the thorns that were beat into his skull. His face swollen from the multiple beatings he endured while he was blindfolded, having no way to flinch or prepare for each blow. Just welcoming each blow without any insight. He knew, of course, but he yielded to it. We know from another prophecy, Isaiah 50 and verse 6, that he offered no resistance during this time. He gave his back to the scourging. He gave his cheeks to those who ripped out his beard. And he refused to hide his face from disgrace and spitting. He says, I did not hide my face from, their, from disgrace or from spit. Nevertheless, as a result of this astonishing humiliation that left people gasping at his appearance, verse 15 tells us, look at 52, verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not understood, not, that which they have not seen, they understand. That which they have not heard, they understand. And now we move into chapter 53, where the prophet asks, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. He recounts the Messiah's early days, his humble beginnings. 
and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He came humble, lowly, meek, his glory cloaked by humanity. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's how he came. Talk about humility. He who is the very radiance and brilliance and effulgence of the glory of God, who by one glimpse of his face is able to turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, he came and he allowed himself to be despised and rejected and dis disregarded by the very creatures he created and even sustained while they rejected him. Continuing on now to the third stanza, verses four through six, perhaps the heart of the chapter. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him. We regarded him as being stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. The thought is that when we saw him, we assumed that he was being crushed and smitten for his own sin. And you remember the charges brought against him of being a blasphemer. People thought that he was being punished for something he had done. But notice verse five, he was pierced for our iniquities. The emphasis here is on the our he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and Yahweh laid on him the iniquity of us all. The reality was that the Savior was enduring the punishment due to his people his sheep that had gone astray into sin and into iniquity. Look at the words here. Pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded. For us, for our reconciliation, that is our peace with God, our healing from the effects of the fall. The only thing we, as his people, contributed to our salvation was the straying that made our rescue necessary. It says here that Yahweh, the Lord, laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it sounds like a mild transfer, doesn't it? He laid the iniquity of us all on him. But ironically and amazingly, this is the only place in the Old Testament where this word is translated as laid. Everywhere else it's translated as to fall upon. To, to cut down upon, to execute. In 2 Samuel 1.15, it's translated as cut him down, execute him. E.J. Young put it like this. The iniquity of which we are guilty does not come back to us to meet and strike us as we might re rightly expect, but rather strikes the servant of Yahweh in our place. The guilt that belonged to us God caused to strike him. And so we move on to stanza number four, verses seven through nine. Tells us that he was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet in all of this, he did not open his mouth. He went as a silent lamb to the slaughter. No resistance, no protest like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, led away, led off, carried off. And as for his generation, who considered that he was actually cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of God's people? Who in that day realized or recognized that this was for the people of God? They were crying out for his blood, crying out for his crucifixion. And what's said here? Who even considered that it was not for his sins? It was for our sins because he had no sin. And they made his grave 
with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Isaiah is emphasizing the sinlessness of this substitute. No violence, no deceit in his mouth, meaning that there was no deceit in his heart because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is an entirely blameless individual. That's what keeps coming up again and again throughout this entire account is that the servant's death is substitutionary. He is suffering on the behalf of his people for their sins, for their iniquities, for their transgressions, because they were the ones who strayed. And now we come to the fifth and final stanza, verses 13, verses 12, sorry, verses 10, 11, and 12. There's no verse 13 here. Verse 10 through 12. The crescendo, if you will, the apex, the high point of this servant song. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. And friends, with the remainder of our time this morning, as we make our way through this passage, I want you to see and I want you to savor the results of our Savior's suffering and death on our behalf. In fact, as we are reflecting upon and rejoicing in our Savior's triumphant resurrection today, I want you to see the resurrection as God, through Isaiah, describes it for us. You know, when Paul sought to remind the Corinthian church of the heart of the gospel, he said, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The resurrection was in accordance with, with the Old Testament scriptures. According to Paul, the Old Testament scriptures testified not only to the death and burial of the Messiah, but also to the glorious resurrection of the Messiah. And so far in Isaiah 53, we have seen his astonishing death. We have seen his burial in verse 9. But in this fifth and final stanza, we encounter and experience and witness his resurrection. Isaiah may not spell it out in those exact terms, but it's certainly implied in these three verses. A dead Savior cannot do anything that Isaiah goes on to describe in these three verses. One commentator aptly says regarding these final verses that in each verse, the servant's resurrection and triumph are clearly implied, while even more facets of his atonement appear than in verses 4 through 6. And so, friends, this is the resurrection according to Isaiah. And I want to highlight and consider with you seven flowers that blossom out of our Savior's death and his subsequent resurrection. You see, if our salvation, as it's described in this final stanza in Isaiah 53, can be likened to a most beautiful garden, the seven flowers that blossom out of the ground of our Savior's resurrection for our enjoyment, for time and eternity are as follows. Number one, having been raised from the dead, Jesus will see his offspring. He will see his offspring. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. After being crushed according to the will of Yahweh, after God did whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place in allowing Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, in arresting him and trying him and scourging him and nailing him to a Roman cross, after our Lord willingly gave himself as a guilt offering on our behalf, 
bearing our punishment, our sins in his own body on the cross, after God the Father put his own son forth as a propitiation for our sins, as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our iniquities, and then dying and rising from the dead, the first flower that blossoms in this passage as a result of his death and his resurrection is that Christ will see his offspring. Can you smell this beautiful flower in this garden? He will see his offspring. He can't do that if he stays in the grave. He can't do that if he stays in the tomb. But he has been risen. And he not only reunited with his spiritual offspring, his disciples and followers at the time of his resurrection, those who were given life as the children of God by our Savior's death and resurrection, but he will see all of his offspring, all of his spiritual offspring that emerge as the result of his saving work. You know, when we die, we typically only live to see our children and maybe, if God grants it, our grandchildren. Some of you might live longer and see your great-grandchildren. Well, unlike Adam, who was promised a seed, unlike Abraham, who was promised to be the father of many nations, and David, who was promised an offspring, all these men died before they can see the fruition of those promises. They died. They were not reunited. They, were, they did not see their offspring. All these men were promised offspring, but they never saw them. They all died, and they stayed dead, and they will be dead until the last day when their bodies are raised immortal. But not our Savior. You might recall in that upper room discourse in John 16, he said to his disciples, a little while and you will what? See me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. He will see his offspring. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And again, because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We know that that little while was the time between his death and resurrection. We do not know what he is talking about. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves by what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me? And now listen to how he describes his resurrection. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. I'm reminded of those disciples that had that joy burning in their hearts on the road to Emmaus when the Messiah, risen from the dead, spoke to them and opened up the scriptures to them. They burned in their hearts with joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, she says. For the joy that a human being has been born into the world, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. He will see his offspring. Just like Isaiah told us 700 years before it happened. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Okay, you might say, okay, he saw his spiritual offspring, that first generation. What about us? What about subsequent generations? The believers in the time of the Reformation and the time of the 1900s and 2000s. What about after his resurrection and enthronement and exaltation to the right hand of God? What about all who come to believe in him after that first generation of offspring that he saw after his resurrection? What about us? Well, Jesus had us in mind in that final prayer before he went to the cross. Listen to these words out of John 17, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask, Father, for these only, speaking of his, of his people in that day 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word every generation after the apostles, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And he goes on and says, Father, at the end of his prayer, I desire that they also, all that you have given me, may be with me where I am to what? To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. We behold him now and are made alive. Whenever we look to the Son, we are given eternal life. John 6 and verse 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And then we continue throughout the entirety of our Christian life to look to him in our sanctification, not just in our regeneration. We look to him in our sanctification. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this happens by the Lord who is the Spirit. But our final hope is not just a glimpse of him in regeneration, not just a glimpse of him throughout the entirety of our progressive sanctification, but our hope is that one final day will come where we will glimpse, we will lay our eyes upon him in his glory, and that will lead to our glorification. John put it like this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because what? We shall see him as he is. He will see his offspring and they will see him. He will see his offspring. He sees us now. We are told in the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 that this mighty, exalted, omniscient, omnipotent Lord walks in the midst of his church even today and he sees us and he knows us. He knows our works. He knows our struggles. He knows our hearts. He sees us. He sees his offspring. But on that day, he will look upon us in resurrected bodies and we will look upon his all satisfying presence and we will be eternally astonished and satisfied by his beauty. And we will to the degree that we will forget about all the pain and all the trials and all the cancer and all the suffering and all the sin and all the tears that we have shed when we see him. In his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He will see his offspring. Who are these offspring? These are the ones for whom he died. The ones who have been made right with him. The ones who whose sins he bore in his body on the tree, that they might be healed. Ones for whom he took the strikes, the stripes down his back. Secondly, as we move on in this garden, having been raised from the dead, he will not only see his offspring, but secondly, he will lengthen his days. He will lengthen his days. Look at verse 10 again. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The word prolong there means to lengthen, to stretch out, to stretch out. This is the, an obvious reference to the resurrection. His days being stretched out never to die again. This is, by the way, the reward of his righteous life said it before from this pulpit that if the wages of sin is death, then the wages of righteousness is life. Life. That's the reward of obedience. That's the reward of righteousness. Life. One scholar put it like this. He will be able to see his offspring because he shall prolong his days. That phrase is a Hebraism for a long, enduring life. In Revelation 1.18, Jesus declared, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. The writer of Hebrews noted that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
He will prolong his days. He will lengthen and stretch out his days. This was the promise in Psalm 91, by the way. Beginning in verse 14, God says to his servants, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And listen to verse 16 of Psalm 91. With long life, I will satisfy him. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this. Jesus trusted in the name of his father. Jesus held fast to him in love. Jesus knows his name. Jesus called to him. Jesus trusted in him. And as a result, the father satisfied him with long life. How long? Unending life. An indestructible life. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, as Paul says, will never die again. Because death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. He will prolong his days. The writer to the Hebrews tells us, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He lives forever. That's the second flower we come across. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And as we move on in this garden, thirdly, he will execute his father's will. He will execute his father's will. Having been raised from death, he will execute his father's will. Notice the end of verse 10. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The word prosper means succeed. It was used in terms of a military conquest, a triumph, a victory. You think of Joshua and what was promised, that if they did everything they were called to do, their efforts in taking the land would be successful. They would prosper in the land, succeed in every battle. And what we read here regarding this third flower that blossoms out of the fertile ground of the resurrection is that he will execute the Father's will, his saving will, his will to redeem his people, his will to save his people, his will to open up an efficacious fountain of blood that would cleanse his people once and for all. He will execute the Father's plan. He will execute the Father's will. It's amazing, isn't it, that out of everyone into whose hand the Lord could have entrusted all of salvation, he entrusts it to his own Son. And the Son carries it out perfectly, sufficiently, without failure, without fall, without falling in any way, without flaw. Amazing that our salvation is put into the hand of our Savior and he executes the Father's will with flawless perfection. His Father's will was that we would be healed and by his stripes we were healed. Not our being healed, but we have been healed. It was his Father's will that he would reconcile us to God and God to us and hence he would be chastised for our peace with God. And now, having been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever the Father's will for his people, Christ has accomplished it. Reconciliation, expiation. It was the Father's will that the Son put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and he did it. It was the Father's will that he offer himself up as a propitiation, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice on our behalf, and he has offered the propitiation, and the Father has accepted it, and we know that he's accepted it because he's raised his Son from the dead. It was the Father's will that all of his people in the new covenant be forgiven and their sins blotted out. And now in Christ, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The will of Yahweh will prosper in the hand of his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was his father's will that he assemble a bride from all the nations of the world. 
And what has he done? He has called this bride. He is calling this bride. And he will finally call the very last member of the church considered to be part of his bride on that last day. And he will take her up. And there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. It was the Father's will that Jesus bring life to the world. Life to all those from every tribe and nation and language beyond the borders of Israel. And he has done that and he is doing that by his life and by his resurrection where he imparts his newness of life. The hand in the Bible, specifically in Isaiah, is symbolic of action, of execution, of power, of work. And it's astonishing and amazing and glorious that the hands that execute the perfect will of the Father with absolute perfection are nail-pierced hands. That's our Savior. Well, we turn to Revelation chapter 5, if you turn there quickly. Revelation chapter 5. We are given this glorious glimpse of the throne room in heaven. Revelation 5, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Note that this scroll was in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There's debate about what this scroll is, what this scroll signifies. But if we can agree that this scroll describes the decrees of Almighty God, the secret things that belong to the Lord, His plan for time and eternity, His plan that reveals salvation and redemption, Verse 6 says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Who takes the scroll into his own hand? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the lion lamb the lion of the tribe of Judah, the slain lamb, just as Isaiah prophesied, the will of Yahweh will prosper, succeed, triumph in Messiah's hand. And that's exactly what he has done. Exactly what he has done. As we move on, we see that having been raised from the dead, fourthly, he will look with satisfaction upon his work. This is the fourth flower that blossoms out of the fertile ground of the resurrection. Jesus will look with satisfaction upon his work. Notice verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Not disappointed. Not regretful. Not remorseful. He will be satisfied. This is the same God who in the very beginning said, let there be, and it was. Let there be, and it was. And what did he pronounce after every day of creation? It is good. It is good. It is good. He looks at what he makes and he says, this is good. This is good. That same satisfaction is not just found in creation. It's found in redemption. So when the Son carries the fullness of our sin on the cross and he is crushed under the weight of the Father's wrath in our place, as he is crowned with thorns, as he takes upon the curse for himself and he dies in the place of his people, at the very end he says, die. it is finished. 
He, uh, he understands in that moment that everything the father gave him to accomplish, he accomplished. He even knew that going into this whole thing in John 17. Father, I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. And after his resurrection, what does Isaiah say as he looks back at all of, of all of his anguish, of all of his agony as the one in Gethsemane who was laying prostrate on the ground, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood in agony, anticipating the horror of the wrath of God. He looks back and he's pleased with his work. He says it is good, indeed, very good. This is one of the reasons we affirm a definite atonement, friends. We don't preach an atonement where Christ says, I'm going to die for the world and sees many, many people going to hell What a disappointment that would be to his soul. No, we affirm that his ransom price is sufficient to release every single captive whom he paid for. And he is satisfied. He is satisfied because it is finished. The father is pleased. The son is pleased. And now the spirit is pleased to apply the fruits of his redemption to all of his people. As we move on, number five, as we move on in this garden of this last stanza in Isaiah 53, we come to the fifth flower that blossoms out of the resurrection, and it's this. He will justify his people. He will justify his people. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 11 again. Out of the agony of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Dead person can't do that. Secondly, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make the many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. As the result of his resurrection, he is able to transfer his very righteousness to his believing ones, his people, those for whom he died, those whose transgressions he bore, those whose iniquities he carried He is able now to make them righteous, to declare them to be righteous in his sight. Is it all mankind? No, friends, it says the many. Our ESV says many. There should be a definite article there. He came to justify the many. That's consistent with his own words in Matthew and in Mark. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many, for many for many. He will justify his people. And now we, this morning, can testify with Paul in Romans chapter 5 that having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, just as Isaiah said, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. As a result of his resurrection, he is able now to justify his people, to declare them right in his sight. Justification does not mean a transformation of the person. It's very important to understand that. Justification has to do with the person's standing before God. And this is what makes justification all the more precious. Because in justification, God takes a sinner and he positions that sinner, he he, he, he puts that sinner into a new standing with God so that even as that sinner still sins and grieves and repents and falls seven times and gets up again, that sinner is righteous in God's sight, perfectly righteous in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God as a result of the son's death and victorious resurrection. This is what Isaiah is telling us. This is the resurrection according to Isaiah. For if because of one man's trespass, sin reigned, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, the many, the many, just like Isaiah 53, 11 tells us, the many will be made righteous. 
And as we move on towards the exit of this garden, we come across a sixth flower that takes our breath away. Having been raised from the dead, number six, this Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will distribute his riches. He will share, he will distribute his riches. Notice verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him. God says, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. This is military conquest language. When a king would go into a foreign territory with his army and level the land and bring out the treasures and bring out the booty, bring out the spoil, he would return and he would give it to his people, share it with his army. The only difference in this is that there was not an army that went in. There was an army, if you will, but it was an army of one. Our Lord Jesus Christ goes in bearing our sin in its fullness. He goes to that cross and he faces the devil. The devil, Jesus said, this is your hour, the power of darkness, this is your hour. And in that hour, the Son of God's life was taken from him, or was it? John 10 tells us, no one takes it from me, I lay it down of my own accord. And what does he do? Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 tells us that this Jesus canceled the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands by nailing it to the cross with himself. And listen to verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Many will see the cross as a defeat, but the Bible portrays the cross as an absolute victory. Jesus goes in, disarms the strong man, pays the ransom price that would free all the captives that belonged to the devil. He pays the price. All those captives that lay liable to the wrath of God, he pays the price and he releases them from the captivity to sin and Satan. And he brings them into his kingdom, bringing life and immortality to life through his gospel. Life and immortality to light through the gospel. And he triumphs over his enemies. And he comes now and he blesses his army who didn't contribute anything to the battle. He comes back to what Isaiah calls the many, the strong, the, the, the great, the, the people for whom he died. And he distributes his riches. Now, as Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessings that are made ours because of the servant's death and resurrection. He comes back to his redeemed ones and he distributes grace and Grace that is sufficient for every trial. He distributes peace that surpasses all understanding. He gives cleansed consciences to be able to serve the living God. He gives forgiveness that is full and free and enough to enable you to serve the living God without fear or dread. Every conceivable blessing is now yours in Christ, purchased by his death, enabled now by his resurrection. And that's why Peter can say, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And he continues on saying that the divine power of the Lord Jesus has granted to us all things that pertain to life and all things that pertain to godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. And now, friends, in Christ, all things are ours. If that sounds crazy, listen to the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Paul writing to these people who are just boasting about this teacher and boasting about that teacher. Paul says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. 
So let no one boast in men. And notice the reason. For all things are yours. He will divide the spoil with the strong, with the multitude, with the vast multitude of sinners that he's redeemed. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. He comes back from the battle and he distributes every spiritual blessing to his people. And as we make our way out of the gate, one final flower catches our attention. Number seven. Having been raised from the dead, he will intercede for his people. He will intercede for his people. Look at the end of verse 12, friends. It's coming right out of the text. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes, makes, Everything up until this point has been perfect tense, meaning a completed past action with ongoing results. Here we have the imperfect tense, signifying continuation, an ongoing ministry of intercession. He makes intercession for the transgressors. I love that. He makes intercession for the transgressors. This transgressor, you as a transgressor, he pleads the merits of his cross and his righteousness and his work on your behalf. You don't have to go to the Father and make an argument that you should be accepted. That's the Son's work, and he's pleased to do it. That's the Son's work. You don't have to go and try to pretend you're something in order that the Father might accept you and love you more. The Son has, do, has done that and is doing that right now. Not that the Father needs to be convinced, but He's pleased with the Son's ongoing pleading and intercession. It was the Father who sent the Son to be your intercessor. So the Father didn't need to be persuaded, but the Father is pleased when the Son comes and along the, along the demands of justice that demand you going to hell the son can lift up his arms and see his nail-pierced hands and say, Father, I've paid for them. They are mine. They are mine. They will be mine. I will bring them to myself. He makes intercession for the transgressors. He did that even in the hour of his death. He prayed on behalf of those who were even crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that intercession, that bridging the gap between God and man, he still does. Hebrews 7, 25, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, as Spurgeon said, to the guttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives. He will prolong his days. He will lengthen his days to make intercession for them. Amazing how consistent the word of God is through and through, Old Testament and New. The, the Old Testament laying the foundation for the New Testament and the New Testament revealing the true meaning of the Old Testament. And so, friends, as we come to an end, we have to ask with Paul the Apostle, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For us in the Son's death. For us in the Son's resurrection. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. That's Isaiah 53. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things, dividing the spoil with the strong? Dividing His treasures with His people, graciously giving us all things, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's Isaiah 53. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. That's Isaiah 53. More than that, who was raised? This is the resurrection according to Isaiah. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Just as Isaiah 53 ends with. 
Friends, if the resurrection teaches us one thing this morning, it's that God is for us. The living God of heaven and earth is for his people. Specifically, believer, God is for you. Receive that. Believe that by faith. Do not resist that. He is for you. God is for you. In the giving of his son and in the resurrection of his son. Christ will see his offspring. As a result of his resurrection, he will lengthen his days and has. He will execute the Father's will. He will look with satisfaction upon his work. He looks back and he has pleasure not only in his work, but in his workmanship. And that's you as a believer. He will justify his people, giving you a righteous standing before God that you cannot earn but that has been freely given to you by his life and resurrection. He will distribute his riches and he will continue to do so until the kingdom comes. So much so that he says, the father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. The meek, his people, will inherit the earth. He will give you all things as a result of his resurrection. And lastly, he will continue to intercede for his people now and tomorrow. Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear the Son of God interceding for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. And yet he says distance means nothing. He is interceding for us right now. This is the good news of the gospel that God has given his Son to be all of this for all that you are in your sin. If you would but turn from your sin and believe in him. And for those of you who have embraced the gospel, continue to walk in this garden where you see Christ crucified, risen, and one day reuniting with all of his spiritual offspring, all of those who emerge as a result of his saving work on the cross, because your days too will lengthen being in him. His will in your life will be executed. You too will enter into the satisfaction of his work You too will forever enjoy the righteous standing he's given you in justification. You will forever enjoy the riches he has bestowed. And you will forever benefit from his ongoing work of intercession. Let's pray.